So, um, I don't know if many of you play sport, um, but there's a sports psychologist called Stephen Smith, and uh, he wrote a book, he did some research on what you call half-time pep talks. I think we can put that next one up. And, and basically, what happens if you don't know, like in a football match or a basketball match, whatever it might be, you get to half-time, the players gather around the coach, and the coach says stuff to spur them on. You know what I mean by half-time pep talks. Anyway, this guy did some research into it, and he basically said that half-time pep talks don't win the game. That basically, they're a waste of time, and they have no effect whatsoever on the final result. Uh, he basically put it down to this. He said most managers uh, of football clubs, of basketball teams, whatever it might be, he said they just don't have the charisma or the understanding to transform a losing side of donkeys into a winning side of lions. Think England football team, and we know that he's got a lot to, uh, to say. He does so, th there are some exceptions to this rule of, of half-time pep talks. And he gives the example of a, of a manager back in the 1960s could, called Jock Stein. Some of you remember him, don't you? Yeah, Graham does. Um, and uh, he was the manager of Celtic and uh, also of Scotland. And apparently, in the 1960s, Celtic were losing at home to Red Star Belgrade. Guess where they come from? Russia, yeah, somewhere like that. Anyway, so the halftime pep talk came in, and, and Jock Stein turned to Jimmy Johnston, the winger, um, and he said, but if you score a hat-trick, then you don't have to travel uh, next time we go to what was called, some of you are too young to know about a, a country called Yugoslavia, but in the 1960s there was this country called Yugoslavia. He said, if you score a hat-trick, you won't have to travel to Yugoslavia for the second leg of the competition. And basically what happened was, because of that pep talk, Johnston then went on to score three goals in the second half. Probably the reason for that is he had a massive fear of flying. And so fear is a great motivator. Um, and so basically what this sports psychologist Stephen Smith has concluded is that half-time pep talks don't win matches. But what has that got to do with the book of Joel? Any idea? You, you, I think some of you worry about the way my mind works at times. But, um, well, I think that the book of Joel is a bit like a half-time pep talk. Joel is like the manager speaking to the team in the midst of what you find as a disaster. So I'll just give an overview of what's going on in the book. In this first chapter that was read to us, we find that disaster has struck the people of God. And, and that disaster that they've already endured is a bit like the first half of the match. And as you look through those 20 verses, it's fairly clear that Israel, God's people, were on the losing side. And so what happens is, is that then Joel then comes along and he receives a word from the Lord, a bit like a pep talk, and he makes it clear to the people of God that the disaster that they've just endured was actually sent by God because they've turned away from God. You then go on to Joel chapter 2, which is much longer, and we're going to divide it up into two. And basically, Joel then gives warnings to the people of God that you think that was bad, another day is coming. It's called the day of the Lord. And, and that day that's in the future, unless you sort yourself out, is far worse than what you've just endured. If you look at um, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, he talks about the day of the Lord being a day of terror and judgment. And then in the rest of 
Joel chapter 2, and then into chapter 3, Joel makes it clear that if the people of God, instead of facing the judgment of God, if they, in fact, clean up their act, if they repent, if they turn back to God, if they give their hearts to God once again, then actually they can be spared and blessed by God. And so what we find in the book of Joel is very clear from what we read is disaster has struck. And the reason for that, Joel says, is because the people of God have ignored God. And so Joel then kind of gives them an option as they think about the next part of the game, as it were. He says, look, carry on as you are, and the disaster will get worse. Or, he says, repent, turn from your sin, turn from your selfishness, and return to God. And he promises them that God will bless them mightily. So that's why I think that Joel is a bit like a half-time pep talk. Disaster struck, and unless there is a drastic change in the team, in this case, the people of God, the situation will get worse and not better. So what I want to do uh, this evening is to look at what's happening in that first chapter of Joel. And we're going to go through it verse by verse, word by word. So are you up for that? No, you're not, you're liars. So... Verse 2, sorry, um, yeah, verses 2 to 12 of chapter 1, if you look through them, um, then it kind of gives a graphic description of the disaster that has hit the people of God. Do you want to put that slide up? Uh, Basically, what's happened, if you hadn't worked out, is that their land had been invaded by this swarm of locusts. I did a bit of research into locusts and did make me feel a bit itchy. Uh, But basically, for those of you who don't know, locusts are shorthorn grasshoppers and they fall into swarms and if they're not controlled, then they totally destroy all vegetation. And that's key for Joel because obviously the people of God at that time uh, were mainly farmers. They they lived off the land. And so when locusts come, it's going to make a huge difference to what they do day by day. And they breed like crazy. So apparently, if uh, one female locust, if she lays eggs in June, guess how many descendants she would have by October? Any idea? A hundred? 10,000? 10 million. Not far off, Chris. Basically, they would have 18 million descendants by October. So basically, that's from one locust. Um, When they swarm, they're so dense, they kind of block out the sun. So they are a farmer's nightmare. And so if you look at uh, verses 6 and 7, if you've got that sheet or your Bibles there, it says this. It says, A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines, ruined my fig trees, stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Joel is talking about a plague of locusts of devastated their land. Who remembers the film Bugs Life? Some of us do. So if you look, if you go back to that, they, they, there are locusts or kind of grasshoppers who are part of that film. And if you remember, they're kind of personified as like hell's angel type figures. So these grasshoppers, these locusts are really quite nasty and they, they bully people and they terrorize everyone around them. So that's what we find going on in Joel chapter one. Disaster has struck. But it hasn't just struck certain groups of people. It has actually hit everyone. 
No one is left unaffected by this locust swarm. It's not as though disaster has hit the bad people and the good people have got off scot-free. Everyone is affected. And actually, if you then look through uh, verses uh, 2 to 12, Joel then picks out different groups in, in verse 5. Uh, he talks, he says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Why? Because basically, the locusts have taken all the grapes, so you therefore can't make wine, and you can't get drunk anymore. So the drunkards are in a bad place. In, in verse 9, Joel picks out the priests, the people who lead worship at the temple. And they've been affected because uh, all of the offerings that the people of God bring are no longer able to be offered. Therefore, the priests aren't able to do their job because of the destruction of the locusts. He goes on in verse 11. He picks out the farmers and the vine growers. Basically, they have been affected. Their livelihood has been affected because the locust swarm has destroyed their harvest. And so this, this disaster that has come has affected everyone. And Joel, right in the heat of this disaster, he then instructs everyone, beginning with the priests, if you look at uh, verse 13, beginning with the priests, he instructs them to do this, to repent, to turn from their sin, to fast, to go without food, to show they're serious about their devotion to God, and to cry out to the Lord, to pray, and to return to him with all of their hearts. And it speaks about that in verse 13. But what is it, though, that God's people have done wrong so that they are then enduring this disaster? Why is it God has seemingly sent such a destructive force against his own people? Well, to be honest with you, if you look through the book of Joel, it doesn't really give us a clear picture of what the people of God have actually done wrong. All we know is that they have turned away from the Lord. What they've done exactly, we don't know. But what we find as you look through the book of Joel is that Joel is far more interested in the solution than the cause of the disaster. At uh, the beginning, um, at the end of chapter 1, as I said in verse 13, he gives a clear indication of what they should do so that that which is to come, the great day of the Lord, doesn't come their way. They need to get serious and they need to turn back to God and they need to repent. They need to fast and they need to cry out. And Joel the prophet seems to indicate that if they do that, God might turn and bless them again. So just thinking about this first chapter, you know, what, what is it that we as a church can take away maybe from this first chapter of Joel? Well, well I think um, one of the things that, about the book of Joel actually that is quite significant is that no one really knows for sure when it was written and who it was written for. And, and there's uncertainty actually about the origin of the book of Joel and what context it's specifically speaking into. And, and that's good for two reasons. One, it gives theologians and academics something to write about and disagree about. But, but another reason, I think, why it's good that we don't know too much about the backstory, uh, it's not tied down to a specific context, is that actually you can pick up the book of Joel and you can take what it says and apply the advice and, the, and wisdom that it gives to various situations that you find yourself in. 
Because it's not context-specific, then actually the book of Joel is kind of regarded as what you might call a liturgical text, a text that can go from generation to generation and speak into people's hearts and minds as they recognize what is going on in Joel's text as it's going on in their own lives. What question, though, I think, can we ask of or can we see from here that we can apply to our situation today? What message is there for us in this? Well, I think, first of all, there is a message in this for us as individuals. There are times when it feels like our lives are just a disaster. Anyone had that? Everything is going wrong, and there's no rhyme or reason why. Uh, in that first song, I love that first song. I, it's, just got, it's just got too many words for my teeth. That's the problem. Um, I'm, if anyone's got false teeth, you can suddenly imagine them spitting out in the middle of that one. But, but it, it, talks about, it talks about God bringing order out of chaos. And then in that final song, it speaks about chaos in there, doesn't it, Chris? So it talks about bringing order out of chaos. And, and I think that at times we find our lives can be like that. Disaster comes our way and it feels like we've been invaded, laid waste and stripped bare, dried up and withered. Joy has disappeared. And we might ask ourselves the question, what have I done to deserve this. And, and it may be, and you have to hear me on this, that this might have come our way because of the life that we're leading and God's judgment upon us. You might want to dissect that later. Or it, it might be that disaster has come our way and there's no rhyme or reason why. But God, in a mysterious kind of way, uses that to bring us back to him. I'm not saying that all disaster comes from God. But bad stuff happens to good people. And I think at that times, we can ask the question, God, might you be using this to bring me back to you? Could it be that in the midst of disaster and chaos that my heart has grown cold, that I've been ignoring you and paying you lip service? Maybe this is a wake-up call that brings us back to God. And, and I think that what we see from Joel is that when disaster may well come our way, whether it's from God or God uses it, it seems to me that what Joel seems to say is that in those moments, by all means go, woe is me, but not for too long. Don't wallow. But in those moments that we should repent and fast and cry out to God and for his salvation. Has disaster come your way? It may not be from God, but it might be the catalyst to bring you back to him. And I think there's a message here 
for the church as well, thinking in particular the church in the West. Um, I think we have to be honest. The church in the West is not in a great place. I've got a very technical slide to go up that explains what's happening for the church in the West. It's terminal decline. Um, and, and the church in the West, you could say, is in a place of disaster, and things aren't getting any better. Despite all of our plans and our programs, um, things seem to go from bad to worse. Now, you might say, well, hang on a minute, at Trinity, things seem all right. Um, a whole bunch of people come along, um, different generations, there's a lot going on, blah de blah de blah um, You know, surely that's not happening for us. You know, we're not in that place. And I think what we have to be careful of there is that actually when God is blessing a people, that we don't then sit back and relax. Because actually, it may be that down the road, things aren't going so well. And we have to recognize, like in the book of Joel, that disaster affects us all. Disaster affects us all. Um, and we all have a part to play. We can't sit back on our laurels and say, well, it's not affecting us. There must be something wrong with them. But we need to recognize that we're all in it together. Um, Archbishop George Carey, how many of you remember him? Some of you. Been around a long time. Is he still alive? He, might, yeah. he writes in the Daily Mail, I think, on a regular basis. But um, in 1998, who, who wasn't born... Um, 1998, Just, yeah, so a long time, 25 years ago, George Carey was talking about the decline in Christianity in the West, and he said this, if our response to the crisis doesn't lead us to Christ, it will surely end in decline for our churches today. This is 25 years ago. Our mission is under attack. He said, in some sections of our Western church, we are bleeding to death. He said that the Church of England is in danger of being one generation from extinction. And, and I think it's, it is fair to say, not just the Church of England, but actually the Church in the West is not in a great place. Yes, there are some churches that are bucking the trend, but I think it's so important that those churches, and we might include ourselves in this, don't become arrogant and then look down on those churches which are in decline. In the book of Joel, when disaster struck, everyone was affected. Everyone was involved. The good people and the naughty people. It hit them all. And I think within those moments, we need to take what you might call corporate responsibility for what is going on. And that even if it's not happening for us, we're in this together. So just thinking about um, this book of Joel, I think that one thing I'd take from it, just as we open it up, is the book of Joel reminds us that when disaster strikes, we need to get on our knees. We need to repent. We need to fast and cry out to God. When disaster comes to local churches, strategies and ideas are important, but I think that Joel emphasizes is that what we really need 
is repentance and crying out to God as a priority for God's people in order to bring blessing out of that disaster. And I think I want to say that whether we face disaster as an individual, whether we face it as a church, we don't face it without hope. There's a a lovely little text in 1 Thessalonians where it, it says we do not mourn, we do not grieve without hope. And I think that when we face disaster as an individual, uh, as a church, yes, we should mourn, but we don't mourn without hope. We recognize that in God's economy, the best is always yet to come. So, some um, rambling thoughts about Joel chapter 1. Disaster struck. More disaster may well be on its way. But to avoid that, to go from a bitter place to a better place, what Joel seems to say is that we need to repent, turn from sin, cry out to God, and seek his help. We need to open our hearts so that where we are cold and indifferent towards God, we might be set on fire with love for him again. In order to avert more disaster, The place, though, we need to start with is ourselves. Let me just finish with a little story and then a practical step. Um, There's an evangelist called Gypsy Smith, and uh, he used to do tent missions. Turn up, put up a tent, preach the gospel, people got born again, blah, 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 blah. And um, he was asked what the secret of revival was. And he said this, go home, Take a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself, and then pray, O God, revive everything inside this circle. Should we do a little practical thing? Right. Did anyone notice the string? It's not a wig. Oh! So, what we're going to do is... um, Let's see, JP, can you give out a whole load there? Uh, Anthony, can you give out some there? Lovely. So you'll need a piece of string. I hope I've got enough for everyone. There you go. There's some for you. Toby, there you go. Oh, sorry. Oh. Lovely, lovely. So do uh, get your piece of string, and um, shall we stand? Uh, Ben, I wonder if you could come out. Is that all right? Huh? Oh, yeah, he can come. I do. Sorry, I wasn't taking the mic out that song. I like that stuff. Um, Okay, so what random thing are we going to do here? So what we're we're not going to do is that um, we haven't got a cleaner at the moment. I was going to give you all chalk, and then we're going to draw circles on the ground. Um, but um, then, then I'd have to mop it up tomorrow. So we've got, we got string. If you want to, and you don't have to, and you might want to put yourself in a, in a bit of place over there. If you, if you need to move, that's fine. Oh, does, anyone, does the rest of the band want to come up? You can take the string with you. Take it with you. Okay. Um, so what you need to do is, like a skipping rope, if you want, is you then drop it. Mine's got stuck. Oh, there you go. And uh, you make a circle. 
You can move out if you want to. Well done. Move out. Oh, oh, you could tie it as well. You could tie a knot. Thank you, Anthony. I didn't think of that. You tie a knot. Has everyone got a bit of string? And um, <clears throat> what are we going to do to finish? Hosanna. Hosanna. Brilliant. Um, but I, I'm going to pray. By the way, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. I don't want anyone to go out and say, this is what the vicar made us do. Um, but, but like Gypsy Smith said, how does revival start? He says, you, you draw a line, a circle around yourself and say, Lord, let revival begin with what's in this circle. And, and the message of Joel is a message of, of asking God for renewal and revival amongst his people. And, and it starts with us to turn from sin, to fast, to cry out, to repent, so that revival might come to us. Does that make sense? Let's just keep... Um, do you want to play quietly, Chris? Is that all right? Oh, sorry. Is that all right? <laughs> sorry. Um, but I just want to... Let's just keep a moment of quiet and, and ask yourself, is, is this my prayer? Has disaster come to me? Am I seeing disaster around me? Is, it, is this my prayer that revival, renewal, would start with me? And within that, are there things that I need to repent of? Is God calling me to fast? Do I need to put aside some time to cry out to him? Just a moment of quiet to reflect. And I'm going to say a prayer. I'll, I'll divide it up. And um, if you want to repeat that prayer about Lord, may revival start inside of this circle, just speak that out loud. Uh, repeat me. Say, Lord God, my prayer for today is that revival would start with everything inside this circle. Be at work, we pray. Amen.